Tyrants, warlords, conquerors. More than 12 centuries ago, the Orgoth invaded Western Imran. They ruthlessly slaughtered and enslaved the population, but unknown to them, they also brought about the rise of arcane magics. This invasion was so monumental that the Imri's calendar is divided by years before the rebellion and after the rebellion, referenced as AR and BR. In 600 BR, the Orgoth made first landfall in the vast northern lands of the Cardic Empire. The Cards were a strong people who had conquered a sizable portion of western Imran, but as a new foe appeared out of the mists of the Meridius Sea, the Cardic Empire was crushed under the heels of the invaders. The Cards fought valiantly and in their desperation they even sent for help, but the northerners had failed to make many friends while conquering the lands. The lords of Signar, Ord, Tordor, and Thuria watched and hoped that the mighty Cardic Empire would be enough to stop the invaders. Not long after landing in the Cardic Empire, Signar and sailors began seeing Orgoth black ships sailing for their western shore. During the early years of the invasion, the great Durgenmast fleet of Todor sailed out to assault the incoming Orgoth vessels. The Durgenmast fleet was the envy of all western Imran. The fleet was infamous among the Shard Island pirate kings and the Cardic Empire due to their strength and prowess in battle. The hopes of many people rested on the success of the attack. The fleet sailed out, and the people of Ord waited with bated breath for the return of the great fleet. As the days passed, hope began to fade. When the Orgoth ships arrived, the Ordic people knew that the Durgenmast fleet was no more. The Orgoth fought like nothing the Imri's people had ever seen before. These hulking men wore armor carved with terrifying, howling faces. They were unnaturally strong and somehow so resilient as to be unkillable. A single warrior would slay hundreds of men in battle. Not only were the warriors a terrifying threat, but they were joined by war witches. These women could summon forth green, searing fire and make blood rain down from the sky. The Orgoth used dark, necromantic magic to bolster the ranks of their army. The warriors and war witches were surrounded by ranks of dreads, ramshackle corpses of flesh and iron. Fear was one of the greatest tools in the Orgoth's arsenal. The battlefields were like scenes from a nightmare, but even death was not an escape for the slain, for the Orgoth carried spiked cages that would capture the souls of the dead damning them to endless torment and stopping them from passing into the spiritual afterlife called Urkaean. By 589 BR, Signar had lost all of its western holds as the Orgoth ruthlessly pushed deeper into the land. The Orgoth swiftly conquered cities and established Orgoth rulers within. The conquerors did not set out to exterminate and slaughter their enemies, but instead enslaved those who did not fall in battle. These slaves were put to work building new fortresses and roads. Those living under Orgoth rule were still allowed to practice their religion, worshipping Menoth and Moro. Some of the slaves were selected and sent back over the Meridius Sea. To this day, the fate of those slaves is unknown. The Northmen, with all their might and power, were not enough to stop the Orgoth. In 569 BR, 31 years after the Orgoth first made landfall, the mighty Cardic Empire was shattered. The city of Caspia became the only city in western Imran 
to remain free and repel the Orgoth invaders. The Orgoths set out to assault the Shard Isles in 546 BR. They had constructed a mighty fortress on Narlast Island named Dur Drakenrung. They sent out a massive fleet bent on conquering the islands. The Dragonfather, Lord Torak himself, saw the threat of these warriors and took flight for the first time in centuries. The Orgoth warriors saw the sky darken as a massive dragon flew overhead. Torak unleashed his fiery breath and the black ships became tinder. The ships burned so hot that not even the sea could douse the fire. After this defeat, the Orgoth never attempted to invade the lands Lord Torak claimed for his Crixian Empire. The Dwarves of Rule suffered an attack in the city of Horgenhold. In 542 BR, the Orgoths sailed up the Black River and amassed their forces near the city. The Rule folk braced themselves for the attack. They watched from the walls as the terrifying Orgoth armies stormed the gates. The Rulik army fought bravely, and the Orgoth almost wiped out the entire garrison forces stationed there, but the Orgoth failed to take the city. This is the only time during the occupation that the Orgoth attempted to fight the Rulik people. The Orgoth set out to conquer as much of Western Imerin as they could, but for reasons unknown, the elven nation of Ios never once suffered an attack by the tyrants. The Orgoth eventually set their sights on the last free city, Caspia, the City of Walls. The citizens behind the Great Walls could hear the clash of steel and the battle cries of the valiant defenders. The Caspians held off the Orgoth invaders paying dearly, for not only the blood of soldiers was spilt in this battle, the last king of Caspia was killed defending his city. Primarch Galmus of the Church of Morrow and Hierarch Sadron IV of the Menite Church stepped forward to lead the people in the dark times that followed. The churches agreed to lead together as the strength of Caspia's united people would be needed to survive. One day, a messenger arrived at the gates of Caspia. He carried word from Warlord Colgzen IV. The tyrant wanted to meet and negotiate. The Caspians believed that the invaders saw the magnificent, impenetrable walls of Caspia and knew the city to be impregnable. The Caspians saw these negotiations as a way to delay, a chance to build their forces. The heads of the city agreed to meet the warlord in person. The Hierarch and the Primarch set out from Caspia's gates to the meeting place. They were to find Colgzin waiting just out of sight of the walls. The Primarch and Hierarch did not realize how foolish they were. They approached the meeting place under the flag of truce. Soldiers from the walls of Caspia witnessed the warlord as he dragged Galmus and Sadron IV in sight of Caspia's walls. He then said, You are ours, your women, your children, they are no longer yours. You belong to us. Your very breath, every drop of blood, every inch of skin, Every tear, every laugh, every broken bone, every drop of sweat is ours. You are the chattel of this land made fat by your own weakness. That I deign to speak to you this once is a warning. Your bodies in life are ours. In death, your soul shall also belong to us. The soldiers watched in horror as Colgzin slit the throats of the two Caspian leaders. He held up each body and drank the blood that poured forth from them. 
The Orgoth then hung the bodies on gallows they swiftly constructed and left them there for the carrion birds to eat. Fear was the strongest tool in the Orgoth's arsenal against Caspia, and what they witnessed that day was meant as a warning. Submit or face the same fate. The Orgoth knew that they could not take Caspia by force. The City of Walls could withstand any force they sent. Caspia could sustain herself for centuries during a siege. The Caspians were able to defend farms close to the walls as well as fish in the bay. The Caspian navy defended the fishing vessels from the black ships. Instead, the Orgoth chose to blockade the city, cutting off all trade coming into it. The Caspians suffered a long period of isolation from the rest of Imran. This isolation forced the city into a worse state than the cities held by Orgoth occupiers. The population of Caspia began to dwindle. Over the next few centuries, the Caspians noticed a decline in Orgoth activity. Not only was there less and less black ships seen coming over the Meridius, but shipments of slaves from occupied cities dropped off considerably. In 140 BR, the Elves of Ios suffered a great tragedy, now called the Rivening. Priests of all the houses were driven mad, and only the priests of Syra remained partially sane. The priests of Syra suffered only mild cases of dementia and were still able to manifest small miracles with their prayers. It wasn't until later that it was discovered that the priests had become disconnected from their gods of the divine court. The elves blamed the humans for the Rivening and have sworn retribution on them. They believed it was related to a strange gift the humans were about to receive. In 137 BR, Madruva Dagra was born in the kingdom of Ord. This child had an amazing gift. When she was angered, her rage would manifest in flames that she could throw from her hands. One day, while playing with her sisters, Orgoth soldiers arrived. They began to assault the girls. Medruva, in a furious rage, unleashed an inferno upon the Orgoth warriors. In the blink of an eye, they fell, completely incinerated. Medruva fled into the woods in fear of reprisal. The Orgoth quickly learned of this event. They sent out hunters to find Medruva and her family. When they found her, they brutally murdered her and her entire bloodline. The swift action by the Orgoth hinted at a fear of the arcane, and many had feared that the death of Medruva Dagra was the end of the gift. But all over Imran, instances of the gift began appearing. These people were constantly hunted by the Orgoth, and when they were found, the hunters would not only kill the sorcerers, but also end their bloodline. The Orgoth tried desperately to suppress the gift of magic. Researchers have found that the gift was given to the people by the twin gods Thamar and Moro. How exactly it happened is unknown, but followers of Thamar say that Moro saw into the future and witnessed the extinction of his followers. Thamar, seeing her brother preoccupied and distracted by these portents, decided to act and try and change the fate of the people. She went to the Infernals incredibly powerful gods living beyond Kaan and Urkan, and made a deal. These infernal gods crave souls and will make any deal to gain them. The tale warns that in nine centuries payment for this deal must be paid, and is topic of much folklore and superstition. 
It's even rumored that the dark gods that the Orgoths serve are higher infernals. The gift of magic began drawing together brilliant minds, those intent on understanding it and finding all its potential uses. During this time, Sebastian Kerwin published many works which were vital in the advancement of the arcane field. Kerwin took on many disciples, but one of note is Dominic Cavanaugh. In an act of defiance, he led a group of arcanists on a mission to free over 300 Thurian slaves. They were successful, but when the Orgoth found out who committed this act of rebellion, they sent out hunters to track down and kill those involved. The Orgoth believed the group to be under orders from the Morrowind Church. As more and more of these acts occurred, the Orgoth's aggression increased as well. In 69 BR, the Orgoth occupiers of Farron gathered up Morrowind priests and slaughtered them. By the end of the year, over 500 priests were executed in what would later be called the Vicariate Slaughter. This act showed the people of Imran what living under Orgoth rule would truly look like. Slowly, the seeds of rebellion were planted. In 67 BR, Sebastian Kerwin found and joined the Circle of the Oath, located in the city of Cyril. They were a secret sept of arcanists focused on studying the gifts they have received and training new sorcerers. It was in this time that Kerwin published his greatest work, Synthesis, in 64 BR. In his publication, Sebastian theorized that arcane energy could be captured and stored in alchemy. These theories would prove to be vital in the years to come. But in 63 BR, the Orgoth found the Circle of the Oaths in Cyril. In an incredible display of power, the sorcerers fought the Orgoth forces. Bolts of lightning struck the invaders while great walls of flame were thrown at the enemies. But in this battle, the circle was dealt a terrible blow. After killing hundreds of Orgoth soldiers, Sebastian Kerwin was slain. It's uncertain what happened, as his body was never recovered after the battle. Agathaeus Narek took control of the Circle of the Oaths. And to prevent another tragedy like before, he set up safe houses in Thuria, Tordor, Rhaenyr, and the Midlands. By 53 BR, the Orgoth began a witch hunt, actively searching out and hunting down those involved with the Circle of the Oaths. The Circle could not withstand the constant attacks and was eventually shattered, but Kerwin's teachings survived the hunts. The surviving members of the Circle of the Oaths hid for many years, desperately searching for a way to rise back up. In 25 BR, they gathered once again. This time, they obscured their research under the cover of alchemy, learning from the foundations that Kerwin had laid. This new group called themselves the Order of the Golden Crucible. They set out to invent new weapons powered by alchemy. In 1 BR, the Orgoth ruler in Farron declared a teeth of over 8,000 slaves to be sent over the Meridius. The slaves were to be chosen at random but many people realized that the Menite and Morrowind clergy seemed to be specifically targeted. The people had had enough. The people rose up, and with weapons supplied by the Order of the Golden Crucible, the people fought the tyrants. After a long battle, the Orgoth governor in Farron was killed. The people mounted his head on a pike and paraded it through the town, and thus began the rebellion. 
but little did they know that victory would not come swiftly or easily. Steeled by their victory, the people united and called themselves the Iron Fellowship. This fellowship was made up of people of Thuria, Caspia, and the Midlands. The Iron Fellowship worked hard to protect its citizens fighting off the Orgoth occupiers, but after seven years of constant struggle against the tyrants, the Orgoth took a stand and destroyed the Iron Fellowship. Although the Fellowship was struck down, the spirit of rebellion still carried on in the Imeri's people. One of these people to carry on the rebellion was an arcanist named Navara. She trained many new students and is considered among Thamorites to be the true successor to Kerwin's legacy. Navara focused her research on how to use magic as a weapon against the Orgoth. Navara was also quite the inventor, and her inventions, namely her puzzle boxes, later helped inventors in the creation of the Colossals. These puzzle boxes were a mix of clockwork and the arcane, and for decades stumped her students. But in 25 AR, a dark shadow was thrown over her legacy. Navara passed away and ascended, and became a scion of the goddess Thamar. Many of her students disavowed her teachings after her ascension. The Order of the Golden Crucible continued their research and invention of new weaponry, and in 28 AR, Aram alchemist Oliver Gulvant showcased the first firearm. The firearm would play a huge part in 32 AR when much of Todor turned into a massive battlefield. Students of Navara and Kerwin's teachings fought against the Orgoth warlords. Smoke and shot from firearms, bolts of lightning, fire, earth, and frost assaulted the Orgoth forces in a battle later called the Battle of a Hundred Wizards. The once terrifying Orgoth war witches fell in battle under the combined might of the Arcanists and the overwhelming number of Emory citizens armed with weaponry from the Golden Crucible. The loss was so devastating to the Orgoth that it would take a full eight years for them to retaliate. The Orgoths, seeing the power the firearm brought to the people of Imarin, invented their own type of firearm called the Black Drake. In 40 AR, the Orgoth eventually recaptured Tordor. Looking to use their old tactics of fear, the Orgoth hunted down the Arcanists, noblemen, and alchemists involved in the battle and executed all of them, as well as their families. But the people of Imarin continued to have hope that they may one day be free of the Orgoth tyrants. Small efforts of rebellion continued. The Golden Crucible saw that the future of all of Imarin hinged on new technology. They continued their research in secret hidden laboratories using volunteer labor and made improvements to the design of the firearm. The Order also began training a secret army, soldiers well trained in the use of the brand new technology. They called these soldiers the Army of Thunder. In 83 AR, a sickness called the Riplung Plague tore its way through western Imarin. This plague affected both Orgoth and Imarin natives alike. The plague caused thousands of deaths on both sides of the conflict, slowing the rebellion, but also slowing Orgoth attacks. The Orgoth took to torching city centers in the areas that were affected, raising the ire of the people. Burning bodies was seen as taboo due to it possibly hampering the soul's passage to Urkaean. A talented arcanist and alchemist by the name of Corbin eventually found a cure for the plague. He swiftly shared his knowledge with other alchemists so that the cure could quickly be administered to the population. By 93 AR, the plague had been halted amongst the Emery's people. 
the Orgoth still suffered from the Riplung Plague for many more years. To the east, in the city of Rhaenyra, the Army of Thunder rose up again. The Orgoth had no answer to the technological might of this new army and fled the city. The Army of Thunder successfully liberated Rhaenyra. The Order of the Golden Crucible, no longer needing to hide and work in secret, started construction on a proper headquarters. Working with Rulik engineers and masons, as well as labor from Ogrens, Thunderhead Fortress's construction was quickly underway in the city of Lyran. Two years passed and the Orgoth returned to Rhaenyra with a large invading force. The warlords stormed the city in a brutal attack and beat back the Army of Thunder, forcing them to fall back to the Thunderhead Fortress. The Orgoth razed the city to the ground, showing a new kind of aggression. In 102 AR, the alchemist behind the Riplung Cure, Corbin, passed away. Upon his death, he ascended and joined Moro as one of his ascendants. The Morrowind Church saw this as a sign that Moro embraced the arcane gift, and so the church began sheltering mages fleeing from the Orgoth. The sanctuary that the church offered helped the arcanists by allowing them to search deeper into Orgoth-controlled territory. They began searching for the writings of Sebastian Kerwin and the Circle of the Oaths. Their search began in what was once known as Thuria in the city of Cyril. Arcanists under the cover of night searched ruins, libraries, old laboratories, and any place that any hint of the Circle's knowledge may lie. These excursions were incredibly dangerous and getting caught meant certain death. But more distressing was that each Arcanist caught would raise more attention from the Orgoth tyrants. By 111 AR, the Arcanists had pieced together enough of Kerwin's work to continue his research. This new group of Arcanists called themselves the Fraternal Order of Wizardry. The Order found many of Kerwin's works and theories and even came across Navarra's puzzle boxes. It was by their hand that the first rune plate would be created, using Sebastian Kerwin's theories from Synthesis and the greater understanding of the Arcane these arcanists were able to infuse a metal plate with an arcane formula. What seemed unrelated to the rebellion effort, but turned out to be one of the most important events of this time, was the revival of the steam engine trains. This led an arcane engineer named Maximilian Niven to begin work on the very first clockwork automaton. This device was simple and had no mind of its own, basically functioning as a clockwork puppet. Niven's colleagues saw the potential in his work and guided him to the Fraternal Order of Wizardry, where he eventually joined their numbers. During this time, his work on his automaton slowed down. Amazed by what the Order of Wizardry was accomplishing, Niven set out to research under their guidance. In his spare time with the Order, he began attempting Sion Navarre's puzzle boxes. The puzzle boxes that stumped her students for over a century began to make sense to Maximilian. The clockwork gears and arcane tricks fell into place as Niven's mind was opened up to new possibilities. Niven set out to create a thinking mind for his automaton project. Utilizing rune plates and newly discovered arcane techniques, he created the very first cerebral matrix. This object was able to mimic the basic functions of a living mind and brought life to Niven's automaton at a very simple level. Over in Lyran at Thunderhead Fortress, another discovery was being made, one of vital importance to the Rebellion's efforts. 
Aurum Magnus Phineas Bain Ridge of the Golden Crucible created the Arcanodynamic Accumulator, and this device was able to store energy for an extended period of time. But unfortunately, the device was too large to be useful at this time. This did not stop the Golden Crucible from drawing up new schematics and finding ways to use the Arcodynamic Accumulator, and eventually engineers were able to make the device smaller. During this time of discovery in the north, the Umbrian Horse Lords fought to regain their lands and had no time for researching. They roamed the lands looking for nomadic people to help them in their cause, and in 147 AR, the Horse Lords and their nomads assaulted the city of Kors and Roshik. The Orgoth, weakened by plague and stretched thin due to rebellions in Rhaenyra and Old Thuria, fell to the strength of the mighty Umbrians. The Horse Lords quickly established control and set out to rebuild the great army they once commanded. Two years later, the Orgoth returned. In a costly assault, the Orgoth failed to take the cities from the Northmen. This was a telling sign that the Orgoth's hold on Imarin was beginning to falter. In 158 AR, 47 years after Niven began work on his automaton, Maximilian and his apprentice Elias Declan completed the first man-sized automaton. Shortly after this technological achievement, Maximilian Niven passed away. Before his passing, Niven imparted his wisdom onto his apprentice, who would carry on his legacy and prove to be a vital part of the rebellion. The freed cities of Imarin had hope, as the Orgoth's control began to slip. Together, they formed an alliance to force out the Orgoth once and for all. They called this the Iron Alliance, as a reminder of the alliance of 1AR, the Iron Fellowship. The Iron Alliance was formed under the newly created Council of Ten, and contained armies from Roshik, Liren, Korsk, and Caspia. The alliance was primarily humans, although some other races were included. One of these was Grindar of the Tolok Krill. He was a general representing the Thornwood Trollkin who had also suffered under the Orgoth rule. In 164 AR, the Iron Alliance gathered in Caspia and had begun work on what they believed to be the ultimate weapon against the Orgoth. They called this weapon the Colossal, a giant metal automaton powered by the Arcanodynamic Accumulator of Lirin and controlled with Niven's Cerebral Matrix. This giant machine of war would be unstoppable. The Caspians smuggled Elias Declan out of Thuria and into Caspia to begin work on the schematics for the Colossal Project. For over a decade, engineers, arcanists, and alchemists worked together to finalize these designs. The biggest problem they encountered was one of materials. Such a large machine required untold amounts of metals. The Caspians could not be seen mining such things as that would draw the attention of the Orgoth. If they discovered this project, the Orgoth would stop at nothing to end it. In secret, the Caspians sent out messengers looking for help. The Rulik people responded. During most of the occupation, the Rulik people remained neutral, only suffering the one assault from the Orgoth. They originally did not see much reason to trade such large amounts of materials to the Caspians, so the Caspians were forced to strike a hard deal. They would share the plans to the Colossal and the alchemical formula behind firearms for the materials needed. As much as the North and South were in alliance, the Northern Lords did not entirely trust the South. They stole plans for the Colossal and began work on building their own. They constructed a factory near Korsk to construct their Colossal. 
24 years later, the Orgoth assaulted the factory in the north, destroying all they had sought to achieve. The Northmen believed that they were sold out by the Rulik people or the Southern Lords. This rekindled animosity between the north and south, but they kept peace to fight off a greater enemy. And eight years later, in Caspia, 30 years after the original conception, the very first Colossal walked out of the factory. Quickly after, five more Colossals were constructed. Hope reigned across all of Free Imran. The Iron Alliance arrived at the Orgoth Fortress outside the city of Farron with their Colossals in tow. Groups of battle mages tapped into the cerebral matrix inside, controlling the massive war machines with their combined arcane abilities. The Colossal shook the earth as it charged towards the fortress. Black Drake fire pinged off the armor of the giant automaton. It swung its massive fist and with a mighty crash, the walls of the fortress were breached. Orgoth warriors charged the Colossal and with a sweep of its fist, the Colossal batted away the warriors. The combined army of the Iron Alliance followed up behind the Colossal with gunfire and arcane attacks. The Orgoth were quickly defeated and they retreated west towards the Meridius Sea. The Iron Alliance did not stop with just one victory and continued to force the Orgoth back. The Orgoth had no chance against the combined might of the Imeris people and their Colossals. Over the next six years, the Iron Alliance would reclaim much of Imerin. The Orgoths saw that their hold on the land was over, and in 200 AR began a great scourge. They tore down fortresses and burned any writings they had, ensuring that none of their secrets were captured by the enemy. They fell back to the fortress of Dur Drakenrun. The people of Imerin believed they had defeated the Orgoth tyrants for good. Little did they know that they stayed at Dur Drakenrung, recouping and biding their time. Lord Torix saw the desperate state of the Orgoth and sent out his forces to destroy them. Crixian pirates assaulted the Orgoth blackships, and the Orgoth fled from their once great fortress. As they fled, the war witches caused a massive explosion, turning the fortress into ash and dust. Three of Torix's lichlords were killed by this incredible display of power and two were left horribly disfigured. The Cricks found the sunken black ships and studied their design and now use the same designs in their current fleets. In celebration, the Council of Ten gathered and in the city of Corvus drafted the Corvus Treaties. In this, they defined the borders we now know. The nation of Cador, previously the Cardic Empire, claimed the Northlands, including Old Cardic Lands, Kos, Skirov, and Western Umbre. Signar claimed the south, including the Midlands, the Thornwood, Caspia, and a significant portion of Thuria. Lael claimed eastern Umbre and what had previously been Rhaenyr. And Ord in the west combined Thuria and Tordor. These nations, now free of Orgoth rule for over four centuries, battle each other over past grudges, over land, and over resources. Warcasters and their warjacks mirror that of the battle mages and colossals, and blood is spilt by nations that were once allies. Will these nations ever know peace? Or will the folktale of the Infernals returning be the end for Imarin?